Third and four. Looks into the nickel of San Francisco in the secondary. Hey, somebody has run out on the field. Some goofball in a hat and a red shirt. Now he takes off the shirt. He's running down the middle by the 50. He's at the 30. He's bare-chested and banging his chest. Now he runs the opposite way. He runs at the 50. He runs at the 40. The guy is drunk, but there he goes. The 20. They're chasing him. They're not going to get him. Waving his arms, bare-chested. Somebody stop Look that out. man. Here comes the blue coat, Kevin. Oh, they got him. Here comes coming the blue from coat. The left. Oh, and they tackle him at the 40-yard line. Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. Uh, and I think, actually, look at that. We're, we're already hitting some bumps in the road because you're back. Try that one more time. How about now? Oh, there we oh, go. Oh, there it is. It helps if I turn the gain there up to the mid-range. Go. Yep. See, David leaves. Uh, hold on. Do it one more time just for posterity's sake. My name's David. That's right. See, now we're back. We're officially Third back. Third time's a charm, I hear. Third time officially. David is back in town. That is actually us in the same room one more time. Uh, I guess this is going to be the last live show that we're going to do for a while because you're not coming back from Pittsburgh anytime soon here. No, yeah, I mean it'll it'll be uh, it'll be a bit. That's right, but you know it is definitely a great time to be alive. Football is back, and it's almost a win Wednesday. I know that we're recording on Thursday, but I th- we thought it'd be better if David were in the room. So we'll just pretend like today is Wednesday. Uh, but we are literally broadcasting ourselves over the internet at this moment on Facebook Live. You know, it's going to space. Right now? Can confirm. That's right. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got no reported deaths from the Better Rivals drinking game, at least that we know of. Uh, (laughs) But, man, I think there were eight rules this year. And I think in this one game we were a perfect eight eight for eight. Like Colin Kaepernick 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 came in in relief. That's right. At the end of the game. And, you know, I believe my exact tweet, because I was at the game and I was having a lot of fun, and I saw Colin Kaepernick come in, and my exact tweet was, earmuffs, chug your motherfucking beer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What we should have really done in hindsight is change the Blaine Gabbert one. So there's one about Blaine Gabbert, um, drink if he throws short Short of the the sticks on third down. That's that's too dangerous. It should have been drink if he throws beyond the sticks. On oh, third down. I see what you did there. Yeah. I mean, uh, that, that would be a, a safer rule to go by. We but. could have also done a drink if he misses a wide open wide receiver across the middle of the field. But we'll get to that in a we minute. We don't have enough beer for that. No, we sure don't. Um, and, of course, really, the, the cherry on top of this cake that is the beginning of the NFL season is that if the season ended today, your San Francisco 49ers would be NFC West champions. Oh, God. Um... <laughs> <That's it. laughs> David, we've literally made know. David speechless <laughs> um, it, it was almost much better if Seattle didn't uh, didn't pull that game out right at the very end there uh, we could have gone out with week one with a win and Arizona and Seattle losses which would have been pretty fantastic yeah that would have been pretty good um, so it's definitely a time to be alive we've got a lot of things to cover uh, so let's go ahead and just jump right into the rundown uh, and talk about some injury updates David, what the hell is going on in the rundown? Because uh, really, there's not a whole lot. I mean, there's basically nothing going on right now. So a couple injury updates. I mean, we we have the uh, the injury reports now post Thursday headed into the Panthers game. Um, really, I think the only notable things, Glenn Dorsey is now a full participant, which I, I think is going to uh, certainly be a big deal against the Panthers. You know, I think one of the only players defensively that that really struggled against the Rams. 
might have been Mike Purcell, who, who didn't really do too great when they were in base. So the ability to potentially have Glenn Dorsey fill in at that nose tackle spot uh, could end up being big. So he's a full participant. And then Eric Armstead continues to be limited with that shoulder injury. Um, it, it seems like it's going to kind of be this way for a little bit here while he works back from that injury. Um, you know, both Chip and Jim O'Neill have talked about kind of working him slowly back into things and and kind of slowly ramping up his, his snap count during the game. So uh, nothing surprising there regarding his status being limited, um, but just kind of something to, to continue to monitor with them. So really injuries, that's pretty much it. We've got a lot to cover, so let's jump right into it because really it's, it's right now, hopefully it's a healthy team, limited snaps for Armstead, but we're going to talk about his utilization here in a minute. Let's jump right into the Rams review because this was our first look at Chip Kelly's offense here in San Francisco. It's like those awkward pictures when a married couple looks at each other for the first time before the ceremony, and it's like, oh, it's a first look. Like, I'm seeing you for the first time. You're seeing me for the first time. Let's pretend we're excited for the – sorry for all of you who did first looks, but I just think those are cheesy. Uh, <laughs> so this is really Chip's scheme. I thought we, – we talked a lot about what would be similar, what would be different. We did a lot of breakdown for Chip leading up to this first game. And then, of course, Chris Brown – not not the slap a hoe Rihanna Chris Brown, but the well, not that Rihanna's a hoe. I'm just saying it's a funny Indian <laughs> tribe. Um, but you think about what he the article they tweeted out before the game was almost damning. If you haven't read it, definitely give it a read. I tweeted it out on my handle, but basically the crux of his article said something very very poignant and very very I think you know kind of correct based on what we knew before. It was that Chip Kelly's offense needs to change in a couple of fundamental ways to continue to be successful in the NFL. And so coming into it as 49ers fans and and fans of what Chip Kelly does on offense, we thought to ourselves, well, what the hell was different? And the first thing that jumped right off the screen was the fact that we did indeed see more power concepts in the run game from Chip Kelly in San Francisco. Yeah, the big one was because, you know, and we'll talk about the actual power plays that they ran um, here in just a moment, but the the big change I think was the introduction of the counterplay. So this is something that uh, that they ran. If you want a, a great example of it, look at the first Carlos Hyde touchdown. Um, this came on counter, and as Chris Brown noted during that game, and, and this is somebody that's really followed Chip's career pretty closely and, and is uh, very familiar with his schemes and kind of how he's evolved throughout his entire coaching career mentioned that this was the first time that he's seen Chip run a counterplay. Um, for basically ever, Chip's base run plays have been inside and outside zone. Eventually, he kind of uh, added a sweep play at Oregon, um, and then they will occasionally run power as well. And those have kind of been the four main run concepts that he's had for, for a long time now. Um, that was what they ran in Philadelphia, at Oregon, etc. So the fact that he's introducing essentially to him this brand new play uh, and it's not only a play that was successful, you know, obviously led to a touchdown there, but it really works as an excellent complement to that inside zone as the primary run. And uh, there's a couple of reasons that, that it, it complements that play well. The first is that it goes against kind of the tendency that Chip has in a lot of his run plays, which is the run direction is going to go opposite of the running back's alignment. So if you see the running back aligned to the left of the quarterback, 
that's a good tip off that the running play is probably going to the right side of the offensive line. And this was one of the tells that you saw Chris Brown mention in his article. Yep. He said, if the tight end and the running back line up on the same side, well, basically, you know, it's an inside zone. If they line up on the opposite side, you know, it's going to be a sweet play. And he's got a pretty good cut up in his article of just play after play after play where it was really easy to tell the run simply based on the running back and tight ends alignment. And then all of a sudden the 49ers get in the red zone and quite literally wham or trap and kick out. And all of a sudden it's a touchdown. Yeah. And it was, um, I think the, the key thing there too, from, you know, how this affects the defense is that it looks very similar to inside zone, right? So everything on kind of the backside, right? So the sign that the running back is aligned to, um, from the defense's perspective, everything looks the same uh, movement-wise as the inside zone. And it's not until all of a sudden the, that backside guard and the tight end pulling across a formation show up that they realize that something's different. And so this gets the run direction going to the same side as the running back's alignment, which, again, is a big tendency breaker. So these are these are things that you know need you need to be able to protect your base stuff, right? The inside zone is still going to be the dominant run play in this scheme, pretty much no matter what. And it, and it still was in this game. Like it was still the, the concept that they went to most frequently, but by introducing some of these other little wrinkles and, and additional concepts and having some more variety within that run game is going to make the running game as a whole more successful. And it's also going to make that base inside zone more successful because teams aren't going to be able to key on it quite as easily. Now that, that run blocking play, I think both, David tweeted it out, and I tweeted it out as well as a GIF. So it's going to be out there on the, on the interwebs plenty. But it really was blocked beautifully. I mean, Carlos Hyde took just a little stutter step in the hole because the counter takes a bit to develop. But you see, uh, I think it was Selick just completely obliterate whatever poor defender got in that hole who thought he was going to make a play. And, and the thing that I think is a little difficult to see on first watch, but watch it over and over and over again, is you can almost see the defenders hesitate. You can almost see them look and go, wait, I, I think I know what this play is, but I, I, all of a sudden I'm seeing people come at me from angles that I'm not familiar with, and then you've got a touchdown before you know it. So it's definitely a great changeup. Definitely watch the tape that we've tweeted out because I think it is a great example of the things that Chip Kelly is introducing to his scheme to be a little different. But this counter wasn't the only thing we saw in the game. We also saw a single back power concept with a backside hitch. This was a run pass option that the 49ers ran with Blaine Gabbert. And I I had them running about three or four different run pass options over the course of this game. And by and large, those plays were successful. They were able to pick up four, six, eight yards. And you can tell it's a single back power when you've got a guard pulling across the formation. Uh, and and all you see Blaine Gabbert do is read that defender over near the wide receiver, and if he comes in and gets sucked in by the play action, just pulls it out of the belly of the back and throws a quick dart, and he completed his first pass to Jeremy Curley. And all this, I mean, this is a play that I think we're going to see pretty often uh, over the course of the, of the season here in San Francisco, but another power concept the 49ers are running with Chip Kelly. Yeah, it, and again, this was one that he has run in the past. You know, power has been a part of that arsenal, but I think it's really the frequency was kind of the big takeaway there. Um, this was something that they went to, I think, a little bit more often than it seemed like Chip used that concept in the past. And so I think it's, uh, you know, a couple of things that are probably the reason why. One, again, more variety, um, being able to protect kind of that base play. Um, but also I think we might be seeing a little bit of that Curtis Modkins impact, right? Like his influence there 
And Chip, even though all of the basics, like all of the core stuff in that offense are, are going to be his, like it's his offense, um, he's not somebody that's going to just block out all of his assistants. I mean, one of the things that we saw from him in Philadelphia was really what he did with the passing game. I mean, the passing game that he had in Oregon was pretty limited. You know, it was really, in college, you can get away with running the ball a high number of times, especially when you have kind of the talent discrepancy that they were often dealing with, you know, with Oregon and other teams that they were facing. So you can kind of get away with, uh, you know, running the ball pretty heavily, doing a lot of the zone read stuff and different wrinkles there, and then having just kind of a pretty basic passing game that you don't go to all that much. That wasn't, you know, you can't do that in the NFL. Like the, the NFL passing game has to be more developed. And so one of the things he did in Philly was he had a lot of guys on his offensive staff that had significant experience with the NFL passing game and had been coaching, you know, in the NFL passing game for a long time. Uh, and so that was kind of what they built their pass game in Philly around. And so he's he's willing to take that input from his assistant coaches and kind of make adjustments to that core stuff that he's going to run kind of no matter what. Um, and I, I think this is where we're seeing some of that influence from Modkins. Do you think, before we move to the second thing that we thought was a little different in this game, do you, do you think, David, that this is why Bruce Miller was kept on the roster? Because we were surprised that he made the final cuts. And eventually he ended up, you know, kind of working himself out of a job by beating up a, a septuagenarian. But love that word. Never going <laughs> to stop saying it. But do you think that this was what was envisioned for his role when we're going to run a bit more power concepts to have someone who is a fullback who might be able to occasionally go out and catch a swing pass? Is that why he was kept on? And then when um, eventually went? I mean, I don't think so, because when you look at how these plays are being blocked, I mean, they're, you're not adding a fullback still, right? So like power, you don't even need a tight end to run power. You're just pulling your guard out in front. Um, and the and fullback counter, would be a tell. Yeah, I mean, and with the, the counter play, you know, you're pulling, again, another guard and then a tight end, which already Chip uses a lot of like 12 personnel stuff with two tight ends out there. Um, so that's not really like a big departure from what they would do kind of within the rest of the offense. Um so it's it's I don't I don't really think that I mean, I don't want to go too far down this road. I, I think Bruce Miller was more of a bulky keep than a chip keep. Yeah, I think sense. that's kind of what it what it came down to. But um, yeah, I, I don't really see Bruce Miller like being somebody that they kind of changed their offense around, you know. So the second thing that we saw that was not similar to what we were expecting from Chip Kelly was something that might surprise you. And that was the tempo of the offense. It's no surprise that the 49ers ranked first in situation neutral pace after week one. That means uh, basically that when you know most of the game is being played, they were snapping the ball at about 20.66 seconds per play. And we'll call it 21 seconds per play. But we always said that you know the tempo can't be a consistent frenetic pace. It's got to be a bit like the Patriots use it where you change it up. And even though the 49ers didn't huddle, they still showed a willingness to slow things down with the lead. And that wasn't something we've seen previously. Yeah, it was really interesting. I thought when I kind of started looking at some of these numbers there, I mean, uh, what they ended up with in the first half was basically 21.7 seconds per play, which was the, the second highest in the first half during week one. But when you looked at the second half, and again, at this point, they have a 14 nothing lead, eventually build that up to a 28 nothing lead, drops all the way down to 29, just a shade over 29 seconds of play um, in the second half, which was 23rd. So... When you start looking back at, at some of his similar splits, you know, when he was with Philadelphia, he, he was never like that high when it came to, to time per play 
um, in any single split during any season that he was with Philadelphia. Like the next highest that you'll really find is just a little bit over 26 seconds of play, which came in 2013, which was his first year in Philly. And um, he's kind of said, you know, multiple times that they weren't really running at the pace that he wanted them to. So that was kind of the slowest year, if you will, in, in Philadelphia. Um, and, and once you get into 2014, 2015, I mean, all of those splits, regardless of whether they're leading first half, second half, you know, doesn't matter. They're all fast up there in the top two or three, uh, in the league for that given split. So I think this was a significant departure and, and, you know, the showing that willingness to be able to slow things down in the second half, um, not go full balls to the wall hundred percent of the time, I think is going to be a big deal because what makes the tempo successful. And we've talked a lot about like why tempo, uh, can be a big deal and like why it can be effective and, and how it can benefit your offense. But you do anything to a defense consistently, right? You keep giving them the same things over and over again. It doesn't matter how good that thing is in a vacuum. They're going to adjust. Like they're going to be able to catch up to it. So by varying tempo a little bit, and then especially in the second half, when you have a lead, you know, wasting a little bit more clock than maybe you did normally, those are going to be things that, that helps this team because, this offense is we're going to get to. I mean, it, look, it was great to see a competent offense in, in week one after watching a full season of, you know, the Jim Tom Sula Jeep Chris led offense, but they're still not great. I mean, they still have some some issues to work out there. So these things can can definitely help. Well, and I think that we saw the effectiveness of tempo on. Yeah, it was a misplay from Blaine Gabbert, that misplay that he had to Jeremy Curley, but it was still a play where. Part of its success was based on the fact that St. Louis had barely lined up. They were still looking at each other like, uh, what the hell are we doing? All of a sudden, ball is snapped and you've got free runners. So the tempo can be effective, and we're excited to see that, in fact, that change of tempo can also be equally as effective, especially when you're sitting on a lead. But what stayed the same in this game? So if what we saw that was different were some of the power schemes, the counter, uh, a bit heavier use, that single back power, uh, what stayed the same? Well, really, there weren't a whole lot of changes to the passing game. We saw a lot of the concepts we would expect going in. You saw mesh. You saw four verts. Uh, you saw snag a lot. Um, I mean, snag was I, their first third down. I think it was like, well, here comes the snag. And sure enough, there it was, because those are the kinds of things that you expect. Uh, and so in terms of passing concepts, this was still very much a Chip Kelly passing offense. Yeah, and I think the the one that was most notable there, to me at least, and, and the one that um, really, I think needs to change. Like we need to see some adjustments going forward when they're using this particular concept was mesh. And, and so mesh again, if you don't remember from the, you know, kind of the chip Kelly breakdown series that we were doing, uh, right after he was hired mesh essentially involves three main routes over the middle of the field. So you have two crossers underneath that are going to kind of cross in opposite, opposite directions. And then you're going to have somebody, usually another tight end, kind of sitting in the middle of the field right behind them. Um, and those are kind of the three main routes there. Usually Chip likes to pair that with a, a wheel route from the running back out of the backfield um, that the quarterback kind of takes a peek at first while those other routes are developing um, and then goes to the middle of the field if that wheel route's not there. So that is the the mesh concept as Chip likes to run it. And he tends to run it in nearly identical formations every single time. Um, and, and so the formation that you'll often see that's really a big giveaway for that is when you have two receivers to each side of the field, so two passing targets. Um, but on one side, and a lot of times this is a two tight end side, rec the, those receivers, those targets are close to the line of scrimmage. So if they're tight ends, they're in line, like right, you know, uh, as a traditional tight end would be or kind of as a wing up for the second tight end. 
Um, or if they're receivers, they have very tight splits, right? Really close to the tackle. Um, and so, and then on the opposite side, you have your two receivers that are kind of split a little bit more uh, wide. And so this, this formation is a big giveaway for that mesh concept. And we've seen, uh, you know, this was actually one of the things Chris Brown talked about in his article as well in, in terms of defenses being able to recognize that look and, and recognize the mesh concept there. Um, but it, it's, it's something that he needs to really figure out because, again, it's a base concept there. It's something that they're going to run. They're not just going to stop running this play. Um, but it, defenses are kind of all over it. When they ran it in this game, they didn't have any success with it. Like, um, Well, yeah, the first time they ran it, the tight end, poor Selleck, got blowed up. I mean, he got absolutely destroyed. Yeah, third, it was like that third and two play. Yep. Selleck's coming one way, gets gets destroyed, and then Patton's going the opposite way as the opposite crosser yep. catches it, gets blown up like immediately yep. after the catch. Short it was of short the of the sticks. It yeah. was a third down and three, I think, and they got two yards again throwing short of the sticks. Not because and and I can't say that it was necessarily a terrible decision by Gabbert. He probably could have held on to the ball a little bit longer, but. It's still because he's looking at that that middle cross, but at the same time, it just as a concept failed the 49ers early on, and yeah, it did there, not get better. There wasn't anything there. I mean, you look at that that route and look at the receivers as they're they as the timing should be going. So those of you that are watching this on Facebook Live right now get to see the image and kind of see the route progression there. And and again, basically, he's checking out that that uh, running back on the wheel route first, giving him a peek as he's dropping back to make sure that's not there, and then you come into that three man combination in the middle you have the backside guy which is going to be on a, a, a dig route but as the fifth guy in that progression i mean you're just not getting to that guy nearly ever yeah i mean he um, went to his third he went to his third read and that made sense based on what he felt time he had and and so again it wasn't a terrible decision on gabbard's part but it just the, the concept did not work all game and and i can't say that it got much better later on even though the niners still tried to run it no i don't think they had a successful um play when, when you talk about like uh, a conversion on third down or getting like a you know a decent chunk of yardage on the early downs there to set you up in a good down distance so uh it really was kind of an unsuccessful concept for them and uh it seemed i mean obviously don't know for sure whether the defense knew that it was coming but they were all over it. I mean, those guys, they, they were they were in close proximity to all those receivers each time that they ran that play. Well, I will say that, again, we're no, we're no you know, kind of geniuses or savants when it comes to football, right? We're, we're going to do what we can, but we're at no, nowhere near the level of like an NFL defensive coordinator. Not even close. And if we can identify the mesh concept and see it coming, then you have to know that defenders and defensive coordinators yeah. can see it too. Absolutely. And, and so again, it's, it's not that this is a bad concept. So what really needs to happen, Bill Walsh ran this concept. Yeah. And it's, and it's again, something that he's had chips had success with for a long time, but, and and it's good to have those sort of base concepts that you hang your hat on, right? The, The team knows well and can execute well, but what you have to do to make those successful over the long haul is you have to be able to kind of disguise and protect them. And that involves, I think two things. It, It means, running them from a variety of different looks. So not using that same sort of formation and having that same sort of towel every time that you run mesh, right? You need to be able to do that from some different looks so that they can't immediately identify that as, oh, mesh is coming. And then also from the look, so if you like that look best for mesh, right, that's fine. You can still kind of do that as your your primary way of running it, but you need other concepts to also come from that look. So you need to be able to kind of disguise and protect it in those ways. And that's something that we really haven't seen because when you get in that formation, I mean, there's nothing else that they're doing. Like they're running mesh when you get into that look and it's, and it's very easy to see when that's coming. So 
I think these are things that we need to see change in the coming games, right? We need to see those adjustments made over the course of the season. And and this was something, you know, you read the Chris Brown piece and, and you think to yourself, you're a little worried about that. You're a little worried about the offense, but when you think about what Chip Kelly did in the run game and you think about that counterplay as an example of him being able to introduce a new look and a new concept from a similar formation, then you think to yourself, okay, this is someone who does know that this is something his offense needs. And I think, again, based on a one-game sample in San Francisco, that we are likely to see similar changes from Chip Kelly moving forward. So let's get to the second thing that stuck out to us from this Rams game, and that's going to be your starting quarterback, one Mr. Glane Babbert. Uh, <laughs> not not Blaine Gabbert, apparently, but Glane Babbert. Apparently, ESPN gave their dyslexic intern the graphics job for the week. I think that I think it was just a Photoshop, and then somebody ended oh, really? up passing it off as like, "Oh, ESPN really showed this," and Twitter, you know, got a hold of it. I'm pretty sure it was. You fake. know, what? I don't think that actually happened on the broadcast. But... I'll buy it because I didn't watch the broadcast, so I just right. saw that on Twitter afterwards. So, uh, in in my mind, ESPN totally did it, and I I'm mean, gonna I'm gonna choose oh to God. live in that reality. I'm gonna call him Glenn Babbert for the rest of time. Um, there's no way getting around that. Yeah, but yeah, he basically if. And we tweeted this out, I think, during the preseason, but there's there's really two words for it, and it's ball location, and Blaine Gabbert has none of it. I mean, it's just, it's something that's been a problem for his entire career, right? Like, accuracy is has always been an issue. Uh, even last year, when people thought that he was playing, you know, somewhat well and, and looked to be taking some steps forward from the Jacksonville time, accuracy was still an issue. Like, ball location has, has been a big deal for him. Didn't change in the preseason, and week one was you know just as awful as as we kind of would have expected. Like the problem, I think that uh, is is really hard to deal with. Like the the part that's hard to accept with that is that he's missing the easy throws. Right, it's the stuff that's set up there to help kind of keep the offense on schedule and and to give him some high percentage looks, like the all the wide receiver screens and you know the the, the bubble screens there and the short underneath kind of the quick game. Like these are all these are these should be throws that he's completing like 80, 85% of the time. Like it, it really should be a very high percentage throw for him. And he's not even close on some of these. Like on some of those wide receiver screens, he's like one hop in the pass to the dude. Um, on some of the swing passes to to backs out of the backfield, like he's throwing it to their back hip, and and so they they lose all of their momentum having to adjust to make that reception. They can't get anything after the catch, like defense is closing in on them by that point. So these these ball location issues on the easy throws, the things that should be kind of gimme stuff, that's the big deal. Um, and then when you compound that by the throws that he's sailing ten yards over dude's head, like the one that you mentioned earlier to Curly, like uh, it's it's hard to be successful in the passing game when you're dealing with that kind of stuff. And I don't buy this idea that Chip Kelly floated. I think it was in earlier this week in a press conference where he said that there were some alignment issues and the wide receivers didn't align in the right place and they were maybe five yards farther away or five yards closer than they needed to be. The The way that a wide receiver will line up is they all have landmarks on a field and they're going to line up based on where their coaches and the play is designed for them to line up. If you're telling me that all of a sudden wide receivers are missing their landmarks and they're lined up at a five yard kind of delta from where they're supposed to be, that's a huge variance. That's not like a little thing. That's a big deal. At that point, then... I just I simply don't buy that. I don't buy the fact that wide receivers are missing their marks so much so that Blaine Gabbert is used to throwing to a spot, and now that spot is five or four yards away from where he expects that wide receiver to be. Even if you were to buy that, 
even if for a second you were to live in that reality. It's an, it's the same reality where Glenn Babbert was an error on television. Then you would need to think to yourself, this is a guy who looked at that receiver, didn't process the fact that that receiver is now in a different place and didn't throw it to that new place and still threw it to the old place. Yeah. So like it just it, it you don't I don't buy it. And and it's like it's one thing so on it depends on the route, right? Like okay, if if it's like the the comeback throw to Torrey Smith that was, you know, you know, 5 yards outside of him essentially. Like and you want to say that there was something going on there where or didn't break back hard enough, you know, back to the sideline or, you know, again, alignment thing, or, you know, he was, I think on that play too, he was like pressured a little bit. So he had to get rid of it a little bit earlier than he maybe would have liked. Okay. That's fine. On the, the throw to Curly, for instance, though, like there's no pressure. The, the receiver is running very clearly into his field of vision. Like even if he's not exactly where he's supposed to be, like you should be able to make that adjustment. Like it's not a, timing i'm throwing this ball before you are even making your break sort of throw right it's a i'm throwing over the middle like into a window that i know is going to be there because there's nobody around you like there's nobody even close right now so i i i think chip kelly too we we see that he's kind of like uh like jim harbaugh and a lot of good coaches in the sense that he's going to try to protect his players and protect his quarterback right and we saw this with anthony davis a little bit and calling Everything that went down Saturday and, and that weekend before the game uh, was just a miscommunication, right? And that's and that's good. I mean, honestly, like that's what you should want from a head coach to to kind of protect your players. Like that's going to let those players know that they can kind of trust Chip to, you know, not put all the business out in the uh, <laughs> in the media there. But um, yeah, it's hard to buy that explanation as it, and and especially when you take into consideration again Gabbard's track record, right? Like this isn't somebody that has been consistently accurate for most of his career and then had a bad game. And then you want to explain some of those sort of issues by, you know, wide receiver alignment or whatever. Like this is a guy that struggled to hit his target his entire career. So I, I, it's just, yeah, it's hard to buy that sort of explanation. So ultimately you look at someone like Blaine Gabbard and you think to yourself, you know what, this is not something that uh, this is probably something that we're going to have to get used to, but it's not something that's okay. He's missing basic throws. He's missing things that should be easy, and it's definitely not okay. But the other thing about Blaine Gabbert that's unfortunate is that he is unwilling to take one-on-one opportunities down the sideline. And really, I mean, this is going to be a problem if he is is unwilling to take these chances, right? So one of the things, if you remember back to the passing game dis- discussions that we had when when looking at Kelly's offense, and you'll remember that we talked a lot about how he can create one-on-one matchups. And that's really the big thing, because they're going to see a lot of man coverage. They saw a lot of man coverage in this game. And you have to imagine, given how defenses have tried to defend this offense in the past, like that's going to continue to be the trend for most games this year. So when you're looking at dealing with man coverage as opposed to zone, it's not as much about scheming guys to get wide open and running to, to free space, because in theory, every receiver should have a designated defender that's following them around. So what you're trying to do instead is create these one-on-one matchups. And yeah, there's things that you're going to do to get o- try to get open, like crossing routes to, to kind of rub guys off and, and do some things like that with your bunch alignments and your stack alignments to get guys free. But generally, you're, you're looking to find one-on-one matchups and try to take advantage of them. And we had a number of those scenarios in this game where, yeah, the guy's not wide open, he's not streaking free, he doesn't have a ton of separation, but he's got a one-on-one up the sideline, right? You got Torrey Smith one-on-one on the outside, like you got to give your your guy an opportunity in those plays. Like you have to be willing to kind of take some of those chances and throw some of those passes and see if your receivers can make a play. And 
look, obviously the 49ers receivers are not the best group in the league by any means. So, um, you know, on one hand, you want you to be like, okay, I, I can see why you don't want to take those sort of chances with the group that they have. But if they're not going to do that, this offense, this passing game is going to struggle. Like, this is a big part of what makes this offense go and this passing game go. And if all of a sudden you remove that element, then you're stuck with a bunch of mesh concepts and underneath stuff that, uh, you know, is just going to get swallowed up by these defenses that are expecting him. Now, it wasn't all bad for Blaine Gabbert, though. He did have some good decision-making, albeit it was decisions that he made with his feet. So his run-pass decision-making was generally pretty good. When Gabbert decided to take off and use his legs, it was pretty much for a good reason. It was a wide lane that was opening up. He knew where he had to get to for the sticks, or he had moved through his progression, or at least three of his progression, uh, and decided that, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and GTFO. I mean, and most of his his quarterback rating for the game, I think, was like 91.3, which I I like quarterback rating as a metric, but anytime it's going to rate someone who's missing wide open receivers and one hopping wide receiver screens is a 91. Oh, wait, you mean the ESPN QBR? The ESPN QBR, yeah. yeah, yeah. Not, not his quarterback rating. Uh, his quarterback rating was, <laughs> was, you know, kind of, I think, average. It was somewhere in the maybe 80s or something like that. Yeah. But, um, but his quarterback rating was at 91, and remembering that, you know, a quarterback rating in the in the 90s is like elite. Like that's like one of the best games you've seen from a quarterback. This was definitely not it. I think they're kind of, you know, they're they're leaning more towards that that running game. But that's because he did make some good decisions with his feet when the wide receivers had difficulty getting any kind of separation is when he took off uh, and he knew exactly where the sticks were. He was efficient with his running. There was really only one play where he missed a wheel route to Sean Drone on what was likely his first read. But by and large, he got rid of the ball quickly, which significantly helped the offensive line. And the decision-making that he was able to do when he did take off or the yardage he was able to gain when he he did take off was positive for the offense. Yeah, and it was, you know, it's not about, we've talked about this, I think, a lot with Colin Kaepernick, is when you're taking off and and you're, you're looking at, okay, whether they're making the correct decision to sit in there and throw the ball or take off and scramble, um, it's not about necessarily the result of the play, right? If they go and pick up five, six yards with a scramble or even pick up a first down or something like that, right? That, that can be fine for that moment, but that doesn't make it a good decision and, and doesn't make it uh, something that's going to help them play better going forward, right? If you had a guy that was open downfield for 18 to 20 yards and you chose to pass that up for an eight-yard scramble, that's not a good decision, even if it gets you what you need at that moment. And, and so when you looked at the, the situations where Gabbard took off in this game, you couldn't really point to many. I mean, the the one um, exception was that play to drone that was down in the red zone where, uh, you know, again, mesh concept, it was the one that had an opportunity to be successful. Um, nobody was following drone out of the backfield, and he was wide open on that wheel, would have walked into the end zone. Um, just didn't see him, ended up taking off, and I think he got a, you know picked up the first down on the play with the scramble. But, again, doesn't make that a good decision that he pass, uh, passes up the easy touchdown there. So... Um, but generally I thought, I thought that was probably the best aspect of his game, like of his performance. That was a thing that you would point to and be like, okay, he did a really good job here. You're going to give him a buy for, you know, making the one mistake. Nobody's going to get that right a hundred percent of the time in the heat of the moment. So, um, but the other thing that you mentioned, and and I think this is going to really fall more in the, the next point that we want to discuss, which is the offensive line play. And one of the things that he did there was consistently get the ball out very quick which helped out an offensive line that a lot of people thought played uh, much better than I think they actually did in this game. Yeah, so let's talk a bit about this whole we shut down Aaron Donald thing because I heard that a little bit on Twitter and from a couple people that were like, look, Aaron Donald had, I think he was credited with three tackles, zero sacks, 
had some pressures, but by and large, it was one of those things where it was like, look, we neutralized a really good defensive line and Michael Brockers and Dominic Easley. We talked about Dominic Easley in the preseason just absolutely treating backup linemen like ragdolls. And, and all of a sudden, then you begin to see this narrative where it's like, oh, the 49ers offensive line must be really, really good. It's a bit of confirmation bias because we were thinking that the offensive line is going to be a bit improved. All of a sudden, they come into the Rams and they have you know a clean kind of blocking sheet in terms of stains on Blaine Gabbert's jersey. But that doesn't mean that the defensive line for the Rams was not disruptive. The non-Joe Staley linemen, which is basically, we got to come up with a name for them. I mean, if we're going to have the <laughs> Twin Towers, it's going to be like the... I don't know, like Joe Staley and the wet paper towels or something. I don't know. We'll, we'll think of something. But the, all the non-Joe Staley linemen were on the struggle bus in this game. And it, it's not just because of the things that they, that they were able to do in the passing game or not able to do. And even though they had good run yardage totals, you look at some plays, and I tweeted out one where Zane Beatles got abused by Michael Brockers so bad that I thought Michael Brockers was Aaron Donald. Uh, and I actually tweeted it out. I was like, oh, my God, look at what Aaron Donald did here. And someone corrected me, and they're like, dude, I think that's Michael Brockers. And I was like, oh, God. I didn't even look at the jersey number. I just looked at how he abused him. <laughs> and then, of course, I'm watching the I'm watching the coaches film, and a couple uh, quarters later, I see Aaron Donald do the exact same thing, and Zane Beatles ends up on his face. So apparently, Zane Beatles, you know, on his face is going to be a thing. And he's still better than Jordan Devy. The, uh, this line is much better than last year's line. But there were some plays where Trent Brown got beat in the run game. There were several plays where, where Beatles got beat. Kilgore, you know, I think acquitted himself pretty well. Uh, and, and I think that then Staley was the, the last guy out there who played a pretty good game. And, and so overall, this line, while the stat sheet and the box score looked good, it wasn't like they shut down the Rams line by any stretch. Yeah, I mean, uh, when you looked at where Aaron Donald lined up in this game, it was pretty much everywhere along the defensive line with the exception of somewhere out on the right end where he would go up against Joe Staley. Like, I don't think I saw a single snap where those two were kind of battling it out as, as the primary blocker and defender there. So when he lined up against basically everybody else though, uh, it I mean, he was nearly unblockable, like uh, until the point that he was, uh, so frustrated with how things were going that he decided to get a little crazy and spike his helmet down and do some stupid shit. Um, I saw like several people mention after that, like, oh, that he's not he's less of a player because he's not as good because he spiked his helmet down and got pissed. Like, get the fuck out of here. I'm sorry. Although Um, I did hear one one, I think, hot take H.A.W.T. that I thought was interesting. And this was on the Ringer podcast. But I think it was Robert Mays. He says, you know, this is Jeff Fisher's team. This is what Jeff Fisher is supposed to prevent. Right. You're supposed to have like a high character team with Jeff Fisher. And if you get this offense and this team with you know Jeff Fisher and you're getting your best player rejected then what's the point in having Jeff Fisher best part of that is i got a notification today that Les Need and Jeff Fisher are like uh, supposed to be receiving extensions in the near future oh get out of uh, here which is great no this is great news for us <laughs> great, the rams i mean there's there's some worry there that like okay they drafted Jared Goff who we liked obviously got Todd Gurley got a promising defense it's got a lot of young players on it like they could have been building something here, but now nope. Jeff Fisher's going to be there for the long haul. Uh, do it. Let's do it. Ride I'm, that I'm mustache. I'm in for five more years of Jeff Fisher. Ride that mustache into the sunset. Do um, it. But yeah, so I, I mean, when you go and look at, you know, kind of each snap and, and I just go, like, if you want to see what defensive line play should look like, just go watch Aaron Donald on every single snap that he's in there in this game. And he just destroys people. Like, 
he couldn't be blocked. There were, there were times when he was double teamed and it didn't matter. Like he went through one double team where he ended up um, having Zane Beatles on his face, like flat on his belly on his face and uh, Daniel Kilgore stumbling over the top of him, like as he split this double team. And so again, the reason that I think a lot of people didn't notice this is because you didn't have the splashy plays, right? Didn't get home for any sacks didn't blow up any runs in the backfield where he got a tackle, right? You're not getting the kind of splashy plays where you're getting it replayed five, 10 times immediately after it happens. So you can really remember, Oh, Aaron Donald did something great here. Um, And so when you don't see that, if you're not really paying close attention, it's easy to miss that sort of stuff. So um, I I think there were a couple of things that allowed the 49ers to overcome what was, I mean, unquestionably a dominant play from Aaron Donald. Um, but the reason that that didn't make as much of an impact and really affect their ability to, uh, like move the ball offensively in in a lot of situations and obviously still put up 28 points on this defense, um, were, were two things. One, we, we mentioned a little bit earlier, which was Blaine Gabbert got rid of the ball very quickly. And I think the credit there is, is twofold. You know, obviously some of the credit has to go to Blaine Gabbert for, you know, getting the ball out of his hand and not hanging on to it too long and, um, making the right decisions as to when to take off and kind of avoiding pressure uh, and not taking those sacks right when they could have been there. And the other has to go to, to game planning. I mean, there were a lot of uh, quick concepts kind of built into the game plan, a lot of things designed to get the ball out of his hand because obviously they knew this was a very talented front and a talented defense that they were going to be dealing with. So you had that on one hand. And then I think in the run game, the other thing that I was really impressed by were the 49ers running backs and their ability to kind of make these adjustments to where these plays were going when, when they were clogged up inside. So I think you look at it, two of Carlos Hyde's biggest runs on the day. Um, one of the ones, the first one where he kind of cut back backside there, split two guys and ended up picking up like 18 yards in the play. Like that's, that was an inside zone and the inside zone is designed to hit in the a gaps, right? Like it's an inside run right on either side of the center. There is where that target is. Um, but that's also where Aaron Donald and Michael Brockers live. And so it was on that play, everything was clogged up. Like the, the lane that was designed to be there was not there. And Carlos Hyde just had to make something happen. And so he did that on a number of occasions to get positive yardage when really the play was kind of blown up and, and wasn't any, there wasn't anything there that was blocked for him. Um, and then Sean Drone did, I think, a good job as well. Like his touchdown was a similar situation. Everything was an inside zone play again. Everything on the inside was clogged up and, and kind of you, you saw the interior lineman getting pushed back in the backfield. And he was able to bounce it outside, make Tim McDonald miss, and get into the end zone. So you had some positive things there happening around the offensive line to kind of make them look a little bit better than I think they actually played. So final thoughts about the Rams game. There's really no reason to expect Chip Kelly to empty out all of his tricks and adjustments in week one. We saw a few wrinkles that were pretty apparent based on what we expected going in. But we by no stretch expect this to be the limit or the extent to the types of wrinkles that Chip Kelly will employ. And and that's the exciting part. We started this segment with talking about Chris Brown's article, and he said Chip Kelly needs to adjust in order for his offense to be successful. And I think David said it best before the, the game or before the, the game. Yeah, before the game. That's, <laughs> when you say it three times, apparently it makes it more real. Uh, before the game, we were texting back and forth, and he said we've seen Chip adjust before. I think we'll see him adjust again. And that's exactly what we saw in week one, at least in the run game. And and so we're hoping for some more adjustments in the passing game. And I think it's definitely exciting to see 
signs of life from this offense because while it wasn't a an amazing performance, you're not talking about Ben Roethlisberger and Antonio Brown here. You're talking about definitely some yardage left on the table, but this is now an offense that is not putrid. It's not terrible to look at. It's an offense that shows promise. And when coupled with a defense, which we're going to get to here in a minute, that actually looks damn good, now you're talking about a team that is going to be perhaps a bit, well, no, that's a stretch. It may not be more competitive than we anticipated, but at least it will be watchable NFL caliber football from a team that we know and love. Yeah, I think as competitive as we expected, right? So it it wasn't necessarily um, a situation where we thought that they were going to be winning, you know, nine, ten games and in in the playoff hunt. Like, this was just a team that we expected because of a more competent coaching staff and, you know, some improvements elsewhere that it made a lot of sense that that they wouldn't be getting blown out by 30 points every other week, essentially. So uh, I think we still have to keep this one game in perspective. You know, we can't jump to too many conclusions right now. We saw this last year, right? They looked very impressive in a in a Monday night victory over the Vikings last year, um, and then obviously went on to be the worst team in football. While the Vikings ended up going eleven and five and making the playoffs, so you can't put too much stock into that just that one game, especially in Week One. But there were some some promising signs, and I think there were some things that um, you know based on what we expected in the preseason that now we can start to look forward and start to be like, okay, these might be things that are going to be uh, strengths for this team. This is going to be some areas where they struggle. It's just the the first piece of that puzzle, right? Like this is our first look at them and what they're going to be like in 2016. So let's talk about the defense a little bit because the defense was super impressive and was absolutely amazing. You've talked, we, we picked out a couple of things that we thought were really interesting. One is going to be the, the movement of Eric Reed. Eric Reed as a movable piece in this defense, this wasn't something that really either of us thought was going to happen out of Jim O'Neill's defense. We thought a couple things were going to happen. Maybe he uses a bit of that three safety look, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But having Eric Reed as really one of the the pieces that usually you reserve for like your super elite players, your Tyron Matthews of the world. Now Eric Reed's moving all over the place. He said, quote, it's the most I've blitzed in my life, which PFF had him charted it three times. So that actually might be accurate that might be the most he's ever blitzed in his life but he had two QB hits and one of them was on a play uh where Tank was covering Tavon Austin so it's a good thing he hit the quarterback otherwise that would have ended poorly but this is Jim O'Neill someone who's excited about Eric Reed and and he had to say about Eric Reed quote we'll go through the season and Eric when it's all said and done will probably play both safety spots nickel we'll play some dimebacker we'll play some defensive end we're just starting with him um, and he was, you know, asked again, like, did you really mean defensive end? And he's like, yeah, defensive end. And, but and I thought I, it was funny that they asked Reed about that. Do you see yeah. Reed's comment? No, I didn't see Reed's reaction. Yeah, so they asked him about it, and he's like, I think he just means probably blitzing off the edge. I can't play defensive end, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is accurate. I yeah, mean, we don't want Eric Reed at, at defensive end for yeah. reals, but uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun watching him move around. Right, like I think this was maybe a role that we envisioned more for Jaquaski Tart. Right, like. He seemed to be the guy that was drafted to come in there and you have your traditional safeties and Eric Reed and Antoine Bethea and, and Tart's this guy that can kind of move around and do some different things. But um, I think the only the reason this is surprising, right, is because we haven't seen him do it before. Like, it's not that Eric Reed doesn't have that ability and, like, didn't have that ability before and Jim O'Neill's the first one to recognize it. It's just, you know, he's always been a very good athlete. Like, he's always uh, covered a lot of ground in the secondary when he's playing more of that free safety type role, like, 
it, it makes sense that he, you know, would be in this sort of role um, over some other guys just because of the talent level that he has. But it was just surprising to see him move around like that because we've never seen that from him. So part of what came with some of the new looks from Eric Reed was this three safety defense, which is a little different than the three safety defense that we saw last year with Eric Mangini. They ran the three safety look 16 times against the Los Angeles Rams, almost called them the St. Louis Rams, there. Uh, 16 times against the old LA Rams. And it was a different in that they moved the safeties around different places. You saw Eric Reed operating as a single high at times in that three safety look. You saw Eric Reed playing what looked like outside linebacker, which was really just a disguise for him to blitz. I even saw Eric Reed in that same three safety, three safety look play nickel corner with Jaquaski and Antoine Bethay playing the two deep safety roles. So this is not your traditional three safety look where someone like Dion Buchanan is just going to play near the line as that kind of dollar linebacker. This is going to be a very versatile, multiple three safety look. And I am really excited to see what this what this develops into the future because, again, nickel and dime is where teams live nowadays. It's two-thirds of their defensive snaps. This is the new base. And when you're operating a new base with the likes of Eric Reed, Jaquaski Tartan, and, you know, old man Bethay, it's going to be really exciting to see what this defense does. Yeah, I mean, they have a lot of players that are that have a lot of versatility that I mean, they just have a lot of good athletes, right? They, you, you look at players at nearly every position right now, and it's great athlete, like, is running around fast. Like, they, they cover a lot of ground. They swarm to the ball really well. So, like, you have just this kind of, like, young athletic defense. And there's a couple of veterans in there mixed in, right? Obviously, Navarro Bohm and Antoine Bethay. Um, they're kind of your, your older guys at this point. But I think really what's going to make this defense go and, and what's going to determine really how successful it is ultimately isn't guys like Bowman and Bethay. It's, it's going to be these younger players, right? Like how are they able to, to come in and, and are they able to find consistency? Like, can they do this at a, at a high level every week? But uh, I agree. It's definitely going to be really fun to watch. I think one couple or a couple of quick things on that safety look too, that I thought were interesting one. I thought it was interesting that they use three defensive linemen still in that package. Normally when you see, uh, teams go to their nickel and dime packages and especially like, you know, anything like this, that's where they're bringing in extra defensive backs, whether they're safeties or corners, like it's usually you bring in that defensive back and you remove a defensive lineman from the field. But what the 49ers were doing, were removing an outside linebacker. So they'd have just one of Eli Harold or Ahmad Brooks or tank Garrett stay in. And then you'd bring that other safety on the field and they would kind of act as depending on the formation from the offense, as that outside linebacker, right? They Sometimes that's going in the slot. Sometimes that's actually lining up in what looks like an outside linebacker position. Um, you know, sometimes it's just kind of hovering somewhere around the line of scrimmage. But it, it was interesting that it was more of a 3-3-5 style look as opposed to what you would normally see like a 2-4-5 um, when, when you're getting that nickel personnel. So that was really fun to watch. And then um, in addition to the Eric Reed stuff, I thought it was interesting to see how they rotated corners in that package too. So um, Jimmy Ward was kicking down inside. I mean, obviously Chris Davis was out who everybody kind of expected to be yep. the nickel corner. Instead, we got uh, Jimmy Ward back at kind of his old spot, essentially for, yep. for a big chunk of that game. And I thought he was great. Like I thought he was the the best corner He's on the field. Best corner sure. on the field easily. Yeah. And then you had Robinson who played some snaps and, and he generally acquitted himself pretty well. Um, it, it was interesting to see Dante Johnson out as well. It's not like, all of a sudden, Robinson is going to be there in place of, of Johnson. Johnson also played some snaps as well. So 
this is definitely a defensive backfield that has some promise. And I think Jim O'Neill knows, uh, or at least based on one game, again, this was the Rams offense, but based on one game, he knows a little bit more what to do with them than we've seen here since Fangio. Now, on the flip side, you've got the pass rushing productivity for the 49ers. This is a team that I think ended up with two sacks, right? It was Armstead and, and Brooks that had the, the sacks for the game. But the pass rushing productivity was something that was something that we hoped was there, especially with the Twin Towers, Buckner and Armstead. But it was really proven out in the numbers. Uh, I think it was Jeff Deeney or someone tweeted out a picture of the old school uh, PFF numbers. So we got a, a peek into the pass rushing productivity. And for three, four defensive ends... You had Eric Armstead and DeForest Buckner as third and fourth behind only Jarrell Casey and Jadavion Clowney ranked ahead of J.J. Watt uh, with their pass rushing productivity. They had, let's see, Armstead had a sack, three hurries, four total pressures. DeForest Buckner had four hurries uh, for four total pressures. And so I anticipate J.J. Watt's going to climb those charts as the season goes Maybe on. A little bit. Yeah, yeah a little bit. <laughs> but one game and one game only you had Eric uh, you've Eric and DeForest really saying, yeah, we're here and we're going to play. And the only reason Eric isn't playing as much as DeForest at this point is because of a shoulder injury. So that that is, again, a promising start for two highly touted defensive linemen and something the 49ers are going to sorely need if they're going to compete and be competitive this season. Yeah, I mean, they were the the two best pass rushers on the team, I think, pretty, pretty clearly. I mean, you mentioned the two sacks, and yes, Ahmad Brooks got one, um, but he got that one because of Eric Armstead. Like if you watch that play again, uh, it was really a stunt where, where Brooks was kind of coming around on the inside and you see Eric Armstead just blow up the right side of the Rams offensive line. Like he just pushes them both back probably six, seven yards in the backfield. And Brooks has, you know, is easily able to loop around and the old TE stunt looks familiar. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was a, it was a great performance from those guys. I mean, um, with Armstead, like you mentioned, didn't get in there the whole time. I mean, he was pretty much only in there on, on passing downs and kind of in those sub packages. He played 25 passing snaps. Yeah. And, and didn't play many other snaps beyond that. So, um, yeah, it was, it was great to see. I mean, the interior of that defensive line is kind of where we thought was going to be the main strength of this team, like the, or at least of this defense. But, um, when you have guys like, you know, Buckner and Armstead, and then you get a, you know, Ronald Blair mixed in there who he only played, I think seven or eight snaps in this one, but, uh, you know, had a hurry in his very first one. It was an unblocked hurry, but hey, we'll we'll take it. Hey, um, take it. You excited can get to it. see. Yeah, I mean, then I guess that's maybe the last thing that I'll point out with these guys is uh, it was great to see them move around so much. Like they they didn't just line up on the interior. Like each guy had a chance to to come off the edge. Like they're going to move. The, these are very you know athletic, talented players that are going to move around a little bit, and they're going to be able to cause problems for these offensive lines in a variety of ways. And especially once you add. And Aaron Lynch into that mix, you know, here in a few weeks, like the pass rush, I don't think it's going to, it's not going to be, you know, fantastic by any means. You're not talking about like a top 10 pass rush here, but they're going to be good. You know, they're going to be, I think at least hover around average, maybe get up to above average there because, uh, those two players, especially in Eric, uh, Armstead and DeForest Buckner are, are very talented. Now, lastly, we're going to have a, I guess we'll have a season long count of the blitz rate. Cause I think last week we put the over under at 40%. Is what we said, I think. I think so, yeah. Yeah, so this week they blitzed 33% of the time, 13 of 39 dropbacks, and this is based on Pro Football Focus's charting thanks to Jeff Dini, who sends us some stats every now and again when we ask for him. But Case Keenum on those blitzes was 2 of 12 for 12 yards, a pick, and a 4.9 quarterback rating when blitz. The 13th blitz was nullified by penalty. 
so yeah, two of twelve, four point nine uh, quarterback rating, a forty nine, if you will. Yeah. I think I think the fun thing too was that you know the the blitz percentage and again uh, what qualifies as a blitz is five or more guys, right? So um, a zone blitz technically doesn't count. Well, it if if you if you send, the, yeah, yeah, it just depends on the number that you're sending, right? So, uh, and one of the things that Jim O'Neill did in this game was he creatively sent four quite a bit, right? There, there were there were quite a few plays where he had only the, the four guys rushing, but it, they weren't your standard four, right? It weren't the the four guys that were lined up along the defensive line there or whatever. So um, that I think was was kind of an interesting takeaway that okay, they're going to look to kind of get more creative pressure without really sacrificing too much on the back end. Like they don't want to sell out and bring six, seven guys every time, but they're going to, you know, bring four or five and they're just going to do it in a bunch of different ways. It kind of seems to be their approach at least through one week. So overall, I think it's fair to say that we are excited to see this brand of football in San Francisco, both on the offense and especially on the defense. And and I think I can speak for both of us, David, when I say that we're excited about the win even if we know that Blaine Gabbard is complete, at least based on one game, <laughs> trash at quarterback, and that this was against the Los Angeles Rams, which if this were against the Steelers, if this were against the Patriots, I think we'd be singing a different tune. But at this point, remember the competition. Remember the fact that it is indeed one game. Case and, Keenum. That's right. And it's a game against Case Keenum. And this is a, a game last year. Remember, we won the opening week Monday game against the Vikings, which eventually were a playoff team. And we completely shot the bed for the rest of the season. So th- that's not to say that you shouldn't be excited. It's not to say that this game wasn't at least fun to completely beat down the Rams and to hold them without a point since 1994 or whatever that stat was. Yeah. But it's still something to put in context, uh, especially now that we're going to get into the Panthers preview. So let's talk a bit about the upcoming game against the Carolina Panthers. And what we're going to do for this week is we're going to think about or we're going to talk about some of the things that we're looking for in this game and it's probably how we're going to structure the previews moving forward what are the things that we are looking at in the game and that we think are going to be key for the win and I think for this game against the Panthers the first thing that we're going to talk about is that you're going to see a lot of that base defense this week and by base defense we mean the traditional 3-4 defense where we didn't see that as much against Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean, you're you're not going to run into too many offenses that use kind of more run-heavy personnel packages more than the Panthers. Like, you look at the rest of that schedule, the, the Seahawks are really even trending more towards, you know, 11 personnel pretty much all the time. So they, they will run the ball a good amount, but it won't be necessarily from heavy personnel packages. Um, and you got the Bills on there, and we know that Greg Roman likes to do some of that stuff. Uh, but there's not too many teams where you're going to see, okay, like the, the base three, four defense might get 50% of the snaps or more. And, and when you look at what the Panthers did last year, according to football outsiders, Almanac, they had personnel groupings with two or fewer wide receivers on just about 58% of their snaps last year. Like Jim Harbaugh territory. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a lot that definitely goes against, you know, the way most offenses are trending. And certainly like, I imagine a lot of that has to do with Calvin Benjamin being out and, and they probably now that he's back won't be quite that high, but this is still a team, you know, when you look at what they did against Denver and, you know, on the opening night, there, like still a team that's going to have multiple tight ends on the field one of the few teams that still uses a fullback and having Mike Tolbert out there a good amount. So what that means for the 49ers is that we're going to get a lot more 
Quentin Dial, Mike Purcell. Hopefully that Mike Purcell turns into Glenn Dorsey. Um, and a little bit less Eric Armstead if he's not ready to go, and probably less Ronald Blair because those are guys that really right now are playing in pass-dominant situations um, and pass-heavy personnel groupings. So uh, I think the run defense is really going to be tested this week. We're going to see, I think... There's a lot of reason to think that it could be very good this year, you know, especially with how they performed against Todd Gurley and company. Um, but this will be a, a very good test for how this run defense is going to be throughout this year. So the next thing that we'll be looking at is really how the 49ers are going to defend Calvin Benjamin and Greg Olson. Calvin Benjamin is a big dude. Like he doesn't, I don't know, for some reason you, you watch <laughs> him on TV and you don't think he's as big as he is, but then you see him standing next to like a tight end or an offensive lineman and you're like, God damn, like you're big. Like and 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 you saw the the touchdown. I don't I don't I forget if it was a touchdown or if it was just a long reception down the seam. I'm pretty sure it was the touchdown where yeah. Cam Newton just throws it up where the only person who's going to get it is Kelvin. Like that, that basically and Kelvin climbs the ladder, catches the ball, comes down with it, touchdown. Those are the types of things that you just it's it's nearly impossible to defend. And and so the question then becomes how do you defend it? I mean, it's clear that their more potent passing offensive weapons are going to be Calvin Benjamin and Greg Olson. I think you can see an easier through line to defending Greg Olson than you can Calvin Benjamin. But these two are by far the biggest weapons in their passing attack. Last week, they combined for 21 of 31 targets. That's 12 for Calvin Benjamin and 9 for Greg Olson. So Olsen spent most of his time in the slot. But at the point at which you're talking about two-thirds, roughly, of your offensive targets... The 49ers are going to need to be able to shut them down in order to have success against this Carolina offense. Yeah, I mean, and they're, they're again, both big dudes. I mean, you mentioned the, the Benjamin touchdown um, in the Denver game, and that was Chris Harris Jr. that was covering him on that play. So it's not like some scrub cornerback. Like, that was one of the best cornerbacks in football, but he's just not a, a very big guy. And so all of a sudden you get Kelvin Benjamin in the slot, which he didn't do very much. I think that was one of only a couple snaps that he had in the slot in that game. Um, he's, he's mostly going to be an outside guy, but you get him matched up against a smaller DB like that. And it doesn't even matter if that DB is a very good player, you know, could be Jimmy Ward, uh, could be Tremaine Brock, like whoever it is of the smaller could guys, Chris Davis could be Ar- Chris Davis. Chris Davis yeah, back, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, it's going to be tough to defend him with those kind of guys. So I think the question regarding Benjamin that I have is, okay, do we still see... So if we imagine a scenario where base defense is in there most of the time, that means your cornerbacks are going to be Jimmy Ward and Tremaine Brock. Those are the starters. That's who played with base in week one. Do they start to, you know, maybe put Richard Robinson out there, Dante Johnson out there a little bit and take Brock or Ward off periodically so that they have somebody with a little bit more size to match up with Calvin Benjamin? So... I think that's kind of the, the key thing that I'm going to be watching there is, is do they change anything regarding the quarterback rotation or who's out on the field relative to what we saw in week one. When it comes to Olsen, I think that one's also pretty interesting because he's going to be a slot guy. Like he doesn't, you know, he'll line up as your traditional tight end as well, but most of his snaps are going to come out on the slot, especially when it comes to passing situations. Um, I think he had, uh, according to Pro Football Focus, had 60 yards uh, in the slot, which was the most of any tight end week one. Um, and then you look at the 49ers last week, and they they were very good defending those tight ends. Like, only 15 yards uh, allowed to Rams tight ends. And, and then we had the one interception by Ray Ray Armstrong when they were trying to target Lance Kendricks over the middle there. So we have a few players that I think would make sense to go against Greg Olson. Um, you know, it could be, 
one of the safeties like uh, Eric Reed or Jaquaski Tart? Do they put, you know, Bowman or Ray Ray Armstrong on him a little bit? Like how, what, what route do they go to try to defend Greg Olson? I think that's going to be an interesting thing to watch because he's, again, going to be a major target, a major part of that offense. If I had my guess, I would say it's going to be a combination of Ray Ray and Eric Reed. Um, I saw Eric Reed in the slot, and I actually saw him blow a coverage uh, in the middle of the game where it ended up not mattering because Case Keenum had some pressure uh, and and eventually either, I I think, missed the throw or or got sacked. But uh, I think it's probably going to be Ray Ray or Eric Reed. And the, the the rotation at middle linebacker was interesting because Hodges started the game, but Ray Ray came in on obvious passing downs, and they didn't mix him up a little bit after that. It wasn't a clear kind of he pass played, non pass split. Played way more. more, like more Ray snaps. Ray was like I think forty two snaps, and uh, Hodges was like around eighteen. Yeah. Or so and and if this is going to be if they really are looking at Ray Ray Hodges as kind of a run pass linebacker split. I could see a world in where this game, really, it's Gerald Hodges who ends up with more snaps as compared to Ray Ray. And I wonder if that's going to be, you know, advantage Carolina if it is indeed Olsen in the slot. So these are the kinds of chess pieces that I think are interesting to look at how they move. But if it were up to me, I would honestly kind of put Ray Ray in all the time. I think at this point, what you gain in pass coverage and athleticism compared to Hodges uh, I don't think that what you lose in in run stopping ability is going to be as big of a delta, but it's going to be interesting to see how we handle those two receiving threats because those are indeed the two things that the 49ers are going to need to handle in terms of having success. Yeah, I mean the thing with Ray Ray Armstrong as well. Like I don't even know that you lose anything as a run defender. Like he's been playing really well against the run, um, so. He's, he's making it difficult to justify Hodges getting a ton of snaps at, at this point. Like he's yeah. been playing very well, but moving to the other side of the ball, I think the one thing, you know, to look at when the Fournier's offense is on the field uh, is, you know, of course with the passing game, I think it's going to be, can they take advantage of this Panthers secondary? That isn't very good. I mean, it, I, this is overall a very good Panthers defense, but their strength comes from that front, right? It's Keekley and Thomas Davis. It's, uh, Star Lotulele and Quan Short and all the guys that they got on the defensive line that's very deep. Um, you know, that front seven is really where they get that strength from. And, and it's more for them about, you know, creating pressure and, and having that front dominate where the secondary doesn't have to be in coverage as long and they can kind of help them out quite a bit. Um, can the 49ers take advantage of those corners? I mean, you looked at Trevor Simeon in that week one game and he wasn't great by any means, but you know what? I think barring the, you know, had the interceptions, which that was the big thing that Gabbert and Gabbert could have easily had two interceptions that game. Two easy, very easy drop interceptions. One of them that would have been a pick six, um, off, off to the left-hand side there, like on a quick out route. So, uh, you know, you want to say that, okay, maybe he was a little bit better than Simeon because of that. But at the same time, like, I think when you look at the quality of throws on a throw by throw basis, Trevor Simeon had the better game in week one, which is kind of saying something because that was the first time that dude's played like any significant NFL football in his career. Dak, so Dak Prescott had a better throw for throw game than Blaine Gabbert. Yeah. So I, but I think the fact that you have somebody like Trevor Simeon, who, while, you know, he may have been better than Blaine Gabbert in week one, he's still not good, right? Like he's, nobody's going to sit here and say that he's in the top half of starting quarterbacks right now in the league, but he looked decent against the secondary, right? When he was able to get a little bit of time, uh, to, to throw from the pocket. So can the 49ers like take advantage of you have a rookie second round pick and James Bradbury on the outside there that just did not play very well in the opener. Um, you have a lot of other inexperienced guys in that secondary. 
doesn't it sound like James Bradbury is like a, a child author? Like he he wrote like <laughs> where the red fern grows or whatever the hell that book was. Yeah. Like it it yeah. sounds like isn't there isn't there like a Bradbury? That's got to be. I, I feel I like that isn't it Ray Ray. Uh, the, isn't it a sci-fi author? Like, didn't he write like Dune or something? Or was I it? Know. I forget. I don't know. I'm sure you guys will remind us on Twitter because we forget this kind of stuff. Uh, we're nerdy, but apparently not that nerdy uh, <laughs> to know who it's Ray. Brad, it's Ray Bradbury. You're right. It is it's Ray Bradbury, Ray, and he was uh, the guy. Yeah, he wrote uh, Fahrenheit four four five one. Yeah, yeah okay, that was the that was the one I was thinking of. Oh, okay. there it is uh, on Facebook Live. Jason Batista, Ray Bradbury. All right, know, nailed it. We got there. Yeah, got there eventually. Um, but yeah, I think that's uh, really the big question because I, I think when you look in the run game, I think it's it's fairly reasonable to expect the 49ers to not get a ton of yardage there. I mean, that front seven for Carolina is very good. Um, if the offensive line plays in a similar manner to what it did in week one, like I think it's going to be difficult. They're not going to be able to run the ball well enough to win on the back of their running game, right? They're going to need to make plays in the passing game. And so that comes down to, again, is Gabbert willing to kind of take advantage of some of those one-on-one opportunities on the outside and, and pick on some of these corners a little bit that are inexperienced. Um, or does that front seven just prove to be too dominant and Gabbard's not willing to take the opportunity, take the chances uh, on the outside and, and kind of this offense looks, I mean, it could be like if, if Gabbard plays the same way that he did in this game, like it could be very ugly for the 49ers offense in this game. I'm going to throw another quick hit in here. Just something that I'm interested in is how the 49ers are going to defend any kind of zone read or read option concepts from the Panthers. I think Case Keenum ended up running one zone read against the 49ers, and they did not respond all that well. But I think maybe with a week of prep, you'll see. But it's probably because it's Case it's Keenum. Case Keenum and like, right? You're not really anticipating that, right? Cam Newton is not Case Keenum? No. So, no, I think uh, that's that's what you call polar opposite. <laughs> I think is 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 the phrase you're looking for. But the other thing I'm interested in looking at is whether or not this defense is going to travel. Because this was a defense that last year had pretty ridiculous home road splits in terms of defensive performance. I think last year their home defensive DVOA was something like 14th. And their away defensive DVOA was somewhere near 26 or 28. No, it was last. Dead last. Oh, it was dead last. Yeah. Oh, there you go. So I think they ended up averaging, or not averaging, but if you took all their games together, they ended up somewhere near 26 or, or 28 or something yeah. like that. Yeah, by, by the end of the season, they worked their way right up in there. But that split, that home road split, was the largest. The largest, league. yeah, in the league. And so, again, this was another fine home performance. I mean, it was a shutout. And yes, it was against the Rams, but there was a quote this week. I forget from from someone. I think it may have been a 49ers player who said, NFL offenses don't get shut out. Like yeah. e- even base competent or e- even kind of mo- the most basic offenses like the 49ers last year, they didn't get shut out at all, even though they had a completely putrid offense and and they were able to shut them out. That is no small feat at the NFL level. Will this defense travel? Because I could see a world in which Carolina still wins the game, but it's, it's a tough, hard-fought battle where the defense is still making it a slugfest. In, in the way that, you know, the, the Vic Fangio defense has kind of made it difficult for teams to win as well. So I think that's one of the things I'm going to look for is whether or not Chip Kelly's, you know, we practice at 9 in the morning, hashtag science thing is going to be, um, is going to kind of bear itself out in anything. Or if we're going to see that same Jekyll and Hyde flip-flop where great performance at home, you go on the road and all of a sudden you're Swiss cheese. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be a great test of our, how good are these strengths that we think that we have right now, right? So offensively obviously the strength there is going to be the run game like even if it's not uh you know a top flight run game like that's going to be where they find the most success most consistently i think um 
and they're going to go against a, a very good front seven and a very good run defense, right? So how do they perform against that level of competition? Uh, and at the same time, like defensively, you have, again, a, a team that runs the ball very well in Carolina. Like they're, they're going to do a lot of different things in the run game, use a lot of different personnel packages and, and run a wide variety of different types of runs. So uh, it'll be a good test to see if this run defense can be as good as it seems like it might be able to be. Um, and I, I think, you know, the, the passing games, I'm not as concerned about, I mean, I think, you know, obviously Calvin Benjamin is, is a big deal, but I don't know that how well they do against the Panthers will really tell us a ton about where that pass defense is at going forward. Um, you know, maybe the pass rush, like how well can Eric Armstead and DeForest Buckner and company do in, in terms of generating pressure consistently. But really, I think in the run game on each side of the ball, this will be a very good test for this team to see where they're at. All right, so what's the prediction? The, the the Vegas line right now has Panthers at minus 13.5, which means they're basically two touchdown favorites at this point. So spot the 49ers 14 points. Uh, or <laughs> or do you think that, that Carolina ends up winning the game by more than 14? What's what's your final score prediction for this game? Um, it, it's really tough. I, I think it ends up being fairly close to that 14 mark, but, but 14, like 13 and a half, that's a, that's a lot of points to give. So I, I think like against the spread, I think you have to go with the cover and that the 49ers come there. Cause I think, you know, maybe more of a, a 10 point type of game. Um, but, but I do see like there, there is potential for this game to get pretty ugly. I think like if, if all of a sudden the run game gets shut down offensively and Blaine Gabbert continues to be Blaine Gabbert, like, the offense is going to struggle and it's going to be bad. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I can definitely see a scenario where it ends up being, even if the 49ers defense plays relatively well, that you're still talking about like a 21 or 24 to six, like type of, of game because Ooh. the offense can't do anything. Yeah. Um, but I think final prediction, uh, hopefully it won't be quite that bad. I'll do more 24 to 13. So th- this is an offense that made what I think is is the best defense in the NFL uh, look not like the best defense in the NFL for a, for a, pretty much over a half of that game. Yeah, I, I mean the Denver is a damn good defense. They've got playmakers everywhere. They're schemed very well, and and they're coached very well. And Carolina made them look like they were on their heels for at least a half of football. And if they can do that, I, I worry about what they'll do to a defense that is just kind of finding itself and trying to yeah. find itself. I think that the 49ers defense will find ways to get some wins against Carolina, but I don't know that it'll be enough. I, I think I have Carolina putting up probably somewhere near 28 points-ish, like you know, 24, 28, somewhere in that realm. And And I think that the 49ers probably end up putting up something like 17 points, but with some kind of useless garbage time touchdown at the end. Uh, And so at that point, it's still an 11 point game. You're betting on the Niners. If you're a betting person in Vegas uh, and and we're not recommending that you bet uh, because we're really, really good at betting. Uh, I think David and I have a combined three bets and we've won one uh, (laughs) (laughs) together uh, at, at whatever, what Bovada or whatever the hell site uh, it was that we bet on. But uh, but yeah, so I think old, I think my final score is probably going to be somewhere near seventeen twenty eight. I think it's an eleven point game, you know. But I still think that it, it's a win for the Panthers. Yeah, I, I just I don't know. I, I have a hard time seeing that many points. Like even if the Panthers are moving the ball well, like they still are a, a bit more methodical, right? Like it's they're going to want to slow the game down a little bit more. So I don't know that they'll get 
necessarily like that many opportunities to put up that many points. Like, but I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think that it's, I think it's a comfortable victory, right? I don't think that it's necessarily a blowout. This isn't like a, you know, Pittsburgh, Arizona style game from weeks two and three last year. But I, I think it's probably not really ever in doubt. But this is what we expected, right? We expected team. We expected this team to beat teams like the Rams, especially at home, and then go to a team like Carolina, where last year you'd you know get a forty burger dropped on you, and now it's an eleven point game. This right, is your more competitive. competitive. Yeah, this is yeah. your more competitive five and eleven team. So it, it's definitely going to be an interesting week of football. It's apparently Tyrod Taylor got pulled out of the game uh, for a hit to the head. And like pulled out by the refs, like not like I'm woozy and I need to go like pulled out. So apparently the Cam Newton effect is real. Uh, They're like, hey, you're black and you're a quarterback. Get out of the game. Uh, Yeah, it's whatever. The Cam Newton thing's like LeBron, basically. Like like LeBron, because he's so much bigger and stronger than everybody, you can foul him so much harder. But because he doesn't fly around, um, he doesn't, you know, get, get those foul calls quite as much. With Cam, it's the same thing. He's bigger than everybody. Absolutely. He's bigger than your quarterback, and so you get some hits on him that would make other quarterbacks look silly, like yep. him just like ragdolls. But because he doesn't have that same body language when he gets hit, you're not getting the same penalties. Like it's. Uh, Could you imagine 192 soaking wet and wearing boots Jared Goff getting hit the way yeah. Cam Newton got or hit? Or imagine like Tom Brady or you know any number of like Drew Brees' neck. Like ninety seven percent of other quarterbacks in the NFL getting hit like that, right? Yeah. Like Cam Newton's a linebacker. Yeah. Like or he's a defensive end. He's as big as Calvin Johnson. Yeah. He's a he's a freak he's of bigger nature. than Calvin Johnson because he's about two fifty and yeah, Calvin he's Johnson much is yeah, than, and Calvin yeah. Johnson is I think he would he played at like two thirty four or whatever. But yeah. um all right. Well I think that about does it for this week's edition of the Better Rivals podcast. We're going to go ahead and kick the outro music in, but we got to call. We got to have a call to action. We've I know, got we've to have been so week. terrible. I know, uh, um, and I think really the the only one that jumps out at me so far is it's got to be Glane Babbert. Glane Babbert. Glane Babbert. Yep. I think that's the move. That's the move this week. It's going to be hashtag Glane Babbert. If you are with us at this part of the the podcast, or if you're listening, or I guess watching on Facebook Live, definitely hit that call to action. It's going to be hashtag Glane Babbert for all you dyslexics out there. I'm sorry. Uh, but it's going to be a, a man. It was a good win Wednesday slash Thursday. Uh, it's good to have you back in town, David. And, uh, and yeah, and next week we're not going to do Facebook live next week because David will be in Pittsburgh. Correct. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so we might try and find some solutions for doing something like that, like a Google hangout, but TBD, it took us like three weeks to get the goddamn audio figured out <laughs> um, during the slow, preseason. We're one step at a time. Yeah. Right? One step at we'll a take time. Things slowly. Absolutely. But it'll be good to see, uh, what the 49ers are able to do against Carolina definitely catch us on the twitters you can find me at better rivals david where can they find you at david newman with an underscore sad very sad underscore at the end sad trombone uh yeah. but definitely give us the like on the facebooks we're almost at a thousand likes definitely uh, review us on itunes if uh it definitely helps people find the podcast and download it because they see some good reviews so thank you if you've reviewed us on itunes and thanks again to the barbary sound who created the song that you're listening to right this second so hashtag is glenn babbert we've got some articles coming up on niners nation david's gonna have his friday things he thinks uh posted on friday i'm probably gonna have one posted on friday or saturday talking about some of the power chip kelly stuff that we talked about at the top of the podcast so thanks again for listening thanks again for tuning in on facebook live uh and as always go niners
Hello, I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seemed Smart. It Seemed Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seemed smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart.